I invite you tonight to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. Exodus, chapter 22. Have you ever noticed that the Bible has a lot to say about our possessions and the use of our possessions? Our money, the use of our money. In fact, one of the greatest indicators of the change of heart that takes place in a person's soul is how they view their possessions and how they view their money. And you can see that in the example of Zacchaeus that we read a few moments ago. Zacchaeus' heart was transformed by the gospel, by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And Zacchaeus had been a tax collector. He had been a cheat. He had taken from people. He had built a, a great wealth at the expense of other people. And his first inclination in his repentance and his and salvation coming to his heart was, I'm going to give back. I'm going to give back everything I stole. I'm going to give back fourfold, which reflects this passage in Exodus 22 tonight. And he said, I'm going to give to the poor. It's a great indication of the change of heart that the Spirit wrought in his life. In Exodus 22, verses 1 through 15, we see some Old Testament laws relating to personal property. And the way in which um, personal property is to be respected and how our neighbor is to be respected. And so really this is an, an outgrowth of love for neighbor. It is a love for neighbor and therefore a respect for our neighbor's possessions and our neighbor's property. Exodus 22 verse 1 says, Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray, and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies, or is injured, or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord, that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. 
the owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have these records of your words that you have given to your people in times past and how these words have regulated their lives with one another and in covenant with you. Father, as your people today, we desire to understand these principles, the truths that are embedded in these words. Help us to understand them and and to apply them to our lives and to our interactions with others today. Lord, this is your word, and may you bless our time in it. In Jesus' name, amen. The section of Exodus that we're in right now is a section that is called the Book of the Covenant. And this Book of the Covenant is a collection of many different laws, and they take different forms. Many of the laws that are found in this section are case laws, casuistic laws. And many of the ones that we're looking at tonight fit into that category. If you could think of it this way, this might help understand what, what these kind of laws are. Basically, you have principle-type laws, general, broad application-type laws, such as the Eighth Command, thou shalt not steal. And so all of these individual cases that these laws talk about are built on that fundamental foundation that it is wrong to steal. So what ended up happening then is that you would have different situations arise within the community of Israel. And many of these that are talked about here were probably situations that came up and were decided upon by Moses or perhaps some of the other judges that Moses had appointed. And you say, well, isn't that just then the words of man? No, because oftentimes Moses would go to the Lord and he would seek a judgment on what he should do in these particular matters. And so then what happened is, as the Lord is speaking through Moses, and as the Lord is deciding things through the decisions of Moses, these individual cases become written down. And the the things that were decided, in in essence, become precedents on which other decisions can be made. In fact, we still, in our current modern judicial system, we follow the same basic principle that you can have a broad rule about something, but then cases will arise about that rule or that law, and there's disagreement about how it should be applied. And so you bring it before a court, and the judge or the judges or the jury, they decide how it should be applied. And then that case goes into a book. And other cases that that come up in the future are often decided on the basis of what was ruled in that case in the past. And so that's kind of what's happening here is these are cases that probably arose. God is speaking through Moses to decide how to render a judgment on these cases. And now it becomes embedded in in law that God's people are accountable for as God's holy word. And all of this has to do with uh, the respecting of personal property. And this passage really breaks down into three 
sections, three categories. And the first one is the theft of personal property and the punishments that go along with that. So stealing personal property and then the corresponding punishments that go with that. If a person steals and sells property, then the general principle of this passage is is that it must be fully restored. So whatever was taken must be paid back plus extra, right? And so, for example, in the case of an ox, it was five times what was stolen. So if somebody steals an ox, he has to pay back five oxen. If somebody steals a sheep, they have to pay back four sheep. And you say, well, isn't that kind of arbitrary? Why five oxen? Why four sheep? Well, I mean, we could think of reasons why that might be. One, an ox is probably more valuable overall than a sheep. But also, one other commentator suggested that perhaps the difference in the lesser number for sheep is that sheep have a tendency to wander more so than oxen. And so it might be easier for a sheep to accidentally wander into somebody else's pen and find themselves in somebody else's possession. And so that could be one reason as well. But the principle is, is that restitution is to be made. And the amount of restitution plus extra for punishment depends on what is stolen and depends on the situations under which it was stolen. And so if somebody steals a possession, sells it, or in this case, sacrifices the animal, perhaps as, a, as, an, as an offering, think about the irony of that. Stealing an ox or a sheep and then offering it as a sacrifice to the Lord. But another possibility is they just, they used it as food, right? They used it as a meal. So different, but the bottom line is that the oxen is no longer available, right? The ox is no longer there to be given back. The original ox or the original sheep is no longer available. It's been sold or it's been killed. And so in that case, five other oxen must be paid back or four other sheep must be paid back to replace the original one that was stolen. But in a different case, if the person stole it, but they still have it in their possession, then it says they need to pay back double, which means they pay back, they pay back the original one So the owner gets back exactly what he lost, and he also has to pay back double as restitution and as part of punishment. And so we see examples of this working out in Scripture. One of the examples that we see of this is in the story of King David. Do you remember King David? He sinned with Bathsheba, right? And so... He took Bathsheba as his own wife. He had Uriah, her husband, killed. And then a time passed, and Nathan the prophet came before David and confronted David. And you remember the story that he he told as a a parable to kind of get David on the hook and show him his sin? He gave him the parable of a man who had a bunch of sheep and then another poor man who only had one sheep. Well, the rich man had a visitor who was coming and rather than taking one of his sheep that he had many of and sacrificing that to feed his guest, he stole the one sheep of the poor man. And you remember David's response. Second Samuel 12 verse five, David burned with anger against the man 
and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Which means David knew the law. Right? He just quoted the law right here where he said he should pay back four times. But his wrath and his anger against that hypothetical individual did not stop with where the law had dictated, pay back fourfold. He went further and said the man should be put to death. And if David is that angry about a sheep, then Nathan basically turns it back around and says, well, what about a man's wife? And interestingly enough, what was the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament? It was death. So David has it all backwards, doesn't he? David committed adultery. He thinks he's fine. And he's, he's not willing to accept his guilt and the punishment of that guilt. But for somebody who steals, the punishment is not death. The punishment is restoration fourfold. But David has it all backwards because his heart has been darkened by his own sin, hasn't it? And so there's an example of the application of this law. I think another one that reflects an understanding of the law is the passage that we read earlier from Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back, I'm going to give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone, if I've stole, if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'm going to pay back what? Fourfold what I've stolen. So even Zacchaeus has an understanding of this principle. And it shows the change of heart that took place in his life. And so there were varying amounts of restitution that varied depending on what the item was and what the situation had involved. But the the principle, the overriding principle is full restitution. Full restoration of what was taken which is important for us to understand and from, a, from a judicial standpoint because ancient Israel had no prisons. Ancient Israel didn't have incarceration. So if you stole something, you didn't go to jail. If you stole something, you paid it back plus extra. Well, what if you didn't have it to pay back? The law solves that as well, doesn't it? If you don't have it to pay back, well, then you are sold into slavery as payment. And again, slavery in ancient Israel was not lifetime slavery. It was for a set period of time. It was temporary. And it was for often, generally speaking, for the purposes of paying off a debt or working out of poverty. And so there's a solution for that. The, 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 the biblical solution for theft is you have to give it back plus extra. No incarceration, no long-term prison terms. You have to restore what was taken. Now, there is a a little parenthesis in this opening section about theft in which we see an instance of what happens if somebody breaks in at night. If a thief is caught breaking it at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. In other words, he is not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. So a thief breaks in at night. He's trying to steal something. The owner of the home defends himself and defends his property and kills the intruder He is not guilty of murder. He is not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. But it says if it happens in the daytime, then he can't kill him. What's the principle here? 
the principle seems to be whether or not the owner feels like his life is in danger. So at night, it's dark. We don't have, you can't flip a switch, right? You can't flip a switch. You can't see what's happening, what's going on. It's a little bit uncertain of what this intruder's motivations are. And so you take appropriate measures and you defend yourself and your family. But if it's daytime and you see what's going on and you judge the situation and you see that this thief is not posing a direct threat to my life, the Bible says I don't have a right to kill him just for taking my stuff. And what's the principle there? Human life is more important than property. Human life is more important than property. Now, if I don't know what's going on, it's dark, it's late, I can't tell, I have a right to protect myself and my family. But if I know and I can see that it's just the taking of stuff, I don't have the right to take that man's life. And so violent theft may be defended with lethal force, but simple theft without the threat of violence cannot be defended with lethal force. And so all of this is about uh, restoring someone's property when it is stolen. The second section begins in verses 5 and 6, and it's kind of just a short section here. And it involves liability when damage happens to another person's property. So both of these seem to involve instances where somebody's field or their crops are destroyed. And based on the, the commentaries and the histories that I read, it seems that Verse 5 and 6 involve a situation in which around harvest time, let's say uh, someone harvested his field and he's brought in all of the fruit of the harvest, all the grain, and he's brought it in. And now all he has left are just uh, the stalks. He just, just has the remaining plants out there with no more harvest on it. Oftentimes what would happen in the ancient world is they would do one of two things. They would let their animals go out and just graze it and graze it to the ground, those plants that no longer had grain on them. Or they would set the field on fire to burn those plants and clear the field. Both of those seem to be what's in view in verses 5 and 6. Well, what happens if those animals that went out to eat the remaining plants wander a little bit too far? And they start eating plants that still have a harvest on them that still have grain. What if they take out someone's whole crop of something? The owner of those animals is responsible. So he didn't directly do it, did he? He didn't directly steal from his neighbor, but through negligence or carelessness, he allowed it to happen. And he's responsible for the loss. Same thing with fire. If a man sets something on fire, he wants to burn his field and and take the, the, the harvested plants down to the ground and clear that field. But what happens if the fire gets out of control and goes into his neighbor's field, which still has crops in it, and destroys that field? The one who started the fire is held responsible. He didn't intend to take his neighbor's goods, take his neighbor's harvest, but it happened because of his carelessness or negligence. He is responsible, and that means he must pay. Again, the principle is restoration, restitution. Well, what about a situation? Here's the last section, verses 7 through 15. What if you have situations in which there's a dispute between people about uh, what belongs to whom? 
And so it seems like you have a situation in which one person uh, entrusts a possession or money to somebody else for safekeeping. Now, remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have banks. So they didn't have, you know, First National Bank of Nazareth. So oftentimes, you would entrust your, your, your goods to someone. If you're going on a trip, maybe you would entrust your goods to someone. Uh, you would, uh, maybe you didn't have a lot of place to store your grain, and so you maybe would store your grain with a neighbor. And so it was in their possession for a period of time. Or maybe they borrowed it, or maybe they rented it from you. And all these situations where somebody's property is in the hands of another. What happens in those situations? Well, if there's theft involved, and it's clearly evident that there's theft involved, and you can catch the third party who stole, then the one who borrowed it, he's not responsible. The thief is responsible. The thief has to pay back. But what if something turns up missing? You can't find the thief. You can't prove that a thief did it. All you have is somebody who borrowed something, and now it's gone. What happens in that situation? Well, in that situation... You bring it before the judges, for the judges to decide. Now, I do, I do want to bring up something that is interesting here in the text. That is some debate of what the text is trying to say. In verses 8 and 9, it says, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges, and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid his hands on the other person's property. In other words, they have to decide if the borrower who says it turned up missing actually stole it and is guilty. But the word judges there is interesting. Also in verse number nine, it mentions the word judges. And what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that is in these two verses is Elohim which is why in some translations, the ESV is one of them, but there are several translations, they have bring it before God. So if there's a dispute about who owns what and whether or not this was stolen, one way of understanding the text is bring it before God. Now, if that's the case, if it's bring it before God, then there may have been different ways for God's will and decision to be made known. It could come through a prophet, could come through revelation through Moses. It could come through the casting of lots, even, which was used in ancient times. Later on in the law, we'll, we'll learn about the Urim and Thummim, which was used to make decisions. And so it's possible that a decision about this, where there was no evidence, no witnesses, all it is is one person's word against another, that it could be decided by God through his revealing his will and his decision. But many, many translations understand the word Elohim, not as God, not as deity, but as authorities, as, as human authorities or as judges. And so the NIV takes it this way. The New American Standard Bible takes it this way. The King James and the, and the New King James take it this way as judges. And what's interesting is that even the, the old, very old ancient translations diverge on this point. The Greek translation has God the old Aramaic Targums have judges. And so it's hard to know exactly which one is intended here. I tend to favor judges. And the reason I do is because of, this is kind of getting technical, but some of you grammarians out there will love it. 
but the, the verb that is used in verse number nine is plural. Now, Elohim is technically a plural noun. But when it's used of the one true God, it is understood as a singular and takes a singular verb. But when it is used as a plural, such as this, it's the same word that can be used of God's small g. When it's used of God's small g, a plural verb is used to indicate a plurality as the subject. Well, in this particular case, a plural verb is used, which indicates that we're not talking about the one singular God of heaven and earth, but that we're talking about a plural noun. Well, it can't be God's small g, because that would just undercut the whole law that God has just given, right? You don't bring it before the God's small g. There's one God that you worship, the Lord of heaven and earth, which leads me to think that it's talking about elevated or exalted or of dignity human persons, such as judges. And this isn't the only verse where Elohim is used in this way. There are several other verses in Scripture where Elohim can mean human authorities, judges. And so I, I tend to favor that understanding. And it has a very long tradition in English translation going back to the King James. And so I take this as judges. You bring it before the judges, and they have to decide. And whatever the judges decide, that is what is to be. But then, if there's someone who says, no, I am innocent, I did not take this, he has the option of coming before the Lord and taking an oath before the Lord. So verse 10 says, if anyone gives a donkey or an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord. Here there's no disagreement. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. And that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. Now, this was incredibly serious business. incredibly serious to stand before the people, the judges perhaps, and to take an oath in the name of the Lord God, which directly relates to the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord or use the name of the Lord your God in an empty or a vain way. To swear an oath in the name of the Lord and not mean that oath or be lying while you speak that oath that is direct violation of the third command, and God hallows his name, doesn't he? And essentially what this person was doing in claiming his innocence is he is calling down upon himself a curse from God if he is guilty. So if someone says, I did not steal your property that you let me borrow, and I'm, gonna, I'm willing to go before the, the elders, the judges, and swear an oath in the name of the Lord God that I did not steal this, the owner has to accept it. The owner has to accept it and accept the loss, that he did not steal it, that it's just lost. And then what he's doing is he is entrusting justice to God, isn't he? He's entrusting justice to God, knowing that the facts may never be known here on earth, but God knows, doesn't he? God knows and God will judge and there are other instances here in which restitution must be paid when it's clear who the responsible party is. 
But all of this has to do with the respect and the honor of others' property. Now, I just want to draw a few lessons or a few applications as we close our time together. One very clear, obvious application is theft is wrong, right? Theft is wrong, and it is incompatible with a Christian walk of life. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.28, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So stealing is not the Christian way of life. It is against God's moral will. A second lesson that I think this passage teaches us is that the Bible understands, it advocates the principle of the ownership of personal property. The Bible advocates the ownership of personal property. Dwayne Garrett says this in his commentary. He says, property rights are real. Israel was never a communal society where everything was shared. The land and its cattle did not belong to the people as a whole. They belonged to individual Israelites and families. And you can see that even in the allotting of the land when they go into the land of promise. And so the Bible holds the reality of personal property, that something belongs to someone. Third thing that this teaches is that personal property is to be respected. These laws are meant to instill in the people of Israel a respect for the property and the rights of one another. And Dwayne Garrett also says, he says, we have an obligation to see to it that no one suffers financial loss through our dishonesty, our irresponsible actions, or our indifferent attitude. So we should care about other people's property as much or more so than we care about our own. Another principle that this teaches is that stolen property was to be fully restored by the thief. Nothing short of full restitution was accepted. I think another principle is that proper care and diligence should be, should be given when entrusted with the property of another. If you borrow something, take care of that and treat it with honor and respect and make sure that it gets back to the owner. If you rent something, if you go to Nationwide and you rent a car, don't treat it like you're in a demolition derby, right? That's someone else's property. You're borrowing it, you're renting it for a period of time, but don't, don't treat that car differently than you would care for your own. So proper care and diligence should be given when entrusted with the property of another. Another principle is, and we've seen this in the text, is that property is never on par with human life. Property is never on par with human life. One may kill a thief if one reasonably feels endangered by the thief, but one may not kill a person for the state for the sake of a stolen sheep. The defense of human life is the highest moral law, and it trumps lower laws. Another principle is that when people live in society together, there are going to be disputes and conflicts. There's going to be one person who says, this is mine, and another person who says, no, this is mine. When people live in society together, there are going to be conflicts. 
But what we need is we need a fair method for resolving those disputes in peace and in honesty. And we need that in order for a group of people, for a society to function. One other principle, and I think, and I'm going to draw this from the New Testament. And that is this, that maintaining peace and love and unity is more important than property rights and making sure that we win. Maintaining peace and love and unity is more important than property rights and making sure that we win. I'll just give you a couple of examples of that from the New Testament. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat as well. Or consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is criticizing the church at Corinth because they're suing one another and they're taking one another to a pagan court for their disputes to be resolved. And the Apostle Paul says, don't you realize that in the next world, in the world to come, we're going to be judging? Don't you have anybody who is spiritually mature, who's wise, where you can get together as believers in Christ and resolve this without having to go before a pagan court to resolve your dispute? And then the Apostle Paul says this, why don't you rather be wronged? Why don't you rather be cheated? In other words, Paul is saying, it would be better for you to lose out and to be defrauded and to be cheated and to lose what you're trying to claim instead of making a fool of the name of Christ in the pagan world. So there are, certain, there are some things, personal properties to be respected and to be honored. But there are some things that are even higher and more important than personal property. What did Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where uh, rust and moth may corrupt and destroy. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Eternal treasures where no thieves can break in, where no, no moth, no rust can destroy or corrode. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So may we walk as citizens of light, as citizens of the kingdom of God, love one another, and therefore respect the property of one another. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call on you tonight. We thank you that you hear our prayers, Lord, through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have blessed us with many things in this world. You've given us possessions. You've given us land and homes. You've given us cars, money, clothing. Lord, those are all gifts from you. They've all things that you've entrusted to us that are blessings in this world. Lord, help us to never value those things above you. Help us to never value the gifts above the giver. And Lord, may we never allow our covetous hearts to draw us into theft and taking from another what rightfully belongs to them. Lord, help us to be responsible with the property of others when we use it for our benefit, when it's entrusted to us for safekeeping. Lord, may we be honorable in the way that we treat one another, the way that we love our neighbor. And Lord, may we handle disputes with love and with grace. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and not on the things of this world. Lord, help us to walk in the light as you have drawn us into this kingdom of light. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.